0: friends, welcome back to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance.
1: This podcast series furthers our mission to support our community as we seek to promote the advancement of women in the securities finance marketplace.
0: We hope you leave today with a broader perspective or ideas about ways to further your network and career. Or perhaps a deeper education on important business changes in our marketplace. Now let's get into the episode.
1: Welcome, everyone. I'm Hapri Baines, Global Head of Product for agency Securities Financing at J.P. Morgan, but I also co-lead Women in Securities Finance London. I'm thrilled to be here today with the opportunity to guide you through the next 40 minutes of an engaging conversation where we're going to be exploring the crucial topic of diversity, equity and inclusion, but focusing on the vital role of fostering an inclusive culture for positive and lasting change. So allow me to introduce you to Selena Suresh. She's a respected advocate in this space, substantial experience advising major corporations, including notable financial institutions. As co-CEO of a global DEI consulting firm, The Culture Practice, Selina is dedicated to driving positive change, and today she brings valuable insights into the conversation. But her influence actually extends beyond business. She's collaborated with the UK government, as well as international organisations like the United Nations, making a real impact on the ground. Through her podcast, The Fix, Selena shares practical stories of change makers within workplaces. And then, last but not least, she's also an executive coach. She guides leaders in creating inclusive cultures. So moving on to our conversation, what can you expect today? We're going to try and structure it in three parts and try to build a story for the audience. We're going to begin with awareness, assessing the current state of DEI, what's working, what isn't, why do some strategies fall short, and the consequences of overlooking these principles, throwing in some real-life stories and metrics on the way. We'll then move into understanding, where we're going to try and unpack what is meant by inequality, how inequality works, and importantly, how it shows up day on day and can impact employee experiences. And then finally, we will shift our focus to practice. So based on your experiences, we're going to explore solutions. What works and where does this journey with respect to inclusivity actually need to begin? It is a comprehensive journey though, and so we will then finish with Selena's guidance and takeaways on practical steps that we can be taking as individuals to drive an inclusive culture. So without further ado, I'm going to dive straight in. And Selena, so firstly, I'm actually going to kick this off by being brave and confronting what I refer to as the proverbial elephant in the room head on. I am acutely aware that just the mention of the acronym DEI, it can elicit a whole range of reactions, and not all of them are positive. Some may sigh, others may feel weary, but it's also a fact that there is some sense of resistance that is creeping into the conversation. But I do think it's important that we understand this, because it's going to help us then navigate the real challenges we face in advancing So given your pivotal role and how central these principles actually are to your line of work, what have you been experiencing in terms of backlash and fatigue in these conversations? And if that skepticism is indeed seeping through, why do you think this is happening now and what can we do to counter it? Well, I first want to thank you
0: for all choosing to be here today because, as I said, I am very acutely aware and have personally experienced this backlash, this fatigue. And to be honest, I think people in our industry have almost done a disservice to the topic. I think we've polarised it and we've not made it safe to engage in the conversation. And I think that what it's led to is this kind of passive resistance where people either feel like they'll sit in silence for fear of saying the wrong thing, being silenced, being cancelled, being labelled. I think there's been a lot of money invested in DEI by companies and I'll come to that later. And not enough progress, not actual tangible outputs. And so I think what we really need to do is make it safe to have an open conversation. I think labelling the pushback and backlash as ignorance or chauvinism or trying to maintain the status quo is unhelpful. I think we all need to actually have an open and brave and honest conversation as to where these concerns are coming from. Because there is a study done by the Chartered Institute of Management in the UK that shows that one third of males feel that some of these gender equality initiatives have gone too far, and my husband will probably kill me for saying this, but I think he he might be one of them, where he feels like surely we've said and done with this topic he's starting to worry what's the impact it feels like it's a bit of a win-lose if I get too involved am I doing myself out of a job because there's been this overemphasis on targets and hiring difference in but the reality is is I think we've not made enough of actually communicating how this benefits everyone and research has shown I'm not talking about the business case because I think our awareness of the business case is there but I think the fact that there's a personal case for change to really inform that commitment that When organisations actually enable women to participate more and to advance more, everyone benefits. This is not just a fluffy statement I'm making, it's a reality. You're free from prescriptive gender norms, because when you don't have an organisation that supports that, you have a very narrow definition of what success looks like and what you need to do in order to fit that prototype and to be successful in advance. So actually more people, including men, advance in gender-diverse organisations, You have greater innovation, greater productivity, it's happier. There is a direct correlation between greater gender diversity in organisations and job satisfaction. You've also got greater flexibility to show up, participate and bring your best ideas to the table. And there was a McKinsey study that shows gender diverse organisations are 25% more profitable than organisations that are not. And I think if that's not a compelling case for change for everybody to want to get on board and to support greater gender diversity and greater diversity more broader than gender, I don't know what is, but I think we need to have those conversations where we really understand that this isn't a zero-sum game and there aren't winners and losers, but actually everyone stands to benefit from doing this. I think another way to really sort of disrupt this denial is to not treat DEI as this siloed initiative that sits with HR and your ERGs or the groups that we're seeking to bring into the organisation. This is very much a leadership imperative. It has to start at the top and it's really important that actually you build in that accountability and you build in that involvement and engagement from the very top.
1: Thank you. So with that backdrop, I'm going to shift into the heart of the conversation, right, and really get into the crux of where we currently stand. It is a fact that we're living in a time of unprecedented change, and the DEI landscape is no exception to that. Challenges persist, but as you pointed out, there have been strides with organisations across industries that are devoting resources to promoting more diverse and inclusive cultures. But the question for me now becomes is, well, what's really working and what isn't? And perhaps most importantly, what are those special ingredients that can make for a successful DEI initiative that does move the needle? So your insights highlighting both the successes and the challenges and examples of initiatives that have truly made a difference in your mind and what sets them apart? Well, as I said, I think in terms
0: of the state of DEI at the moment, we've definitely seen a kind of a steady slowing of pace commitments to initiatives, to DEI programmes, and we've seen it in the news lately. And I think that comes down to a lot of frustration at the lack of tangible progress. So what we have seen is lots of money, as I mentioned, in twenty twenty seven point five billion $7.5 billion was spent wow. on DEI initiatives, and that's set to double by 2026. However, although organisations may have become demographically more diverse, they're actually less inclusive than they have been before so simply hiring indifference as a way to solve for diversity equity and inclusion is not the answer and it's actually something michelle and i bang home when we start the sessions you have no business hiring difference into an organization where the culture doesn't enable that difference to actually thrive and be successful because actually it can do more to hinder progress and despite all this money i think a world economic forum report showed that It's still going to take 151 years to close the global economic gender gap at all levels. So it's not the most hopeful story there, but it is the case and the state of play at the moment. There was a PwC global survey that also showed that 73% of female millennials within the financial services industry state that there's lots of talk about diversity, equity and inclusion But they're not seeing the impact of that in terms of removing barriers to success, removing barriers to opportunities for advancement. There are three common things I want to identify that we've seen and evidence also supports when it comes to impacting the effectiveness of any initiatives or programmes that you launch. One is insufficient prioritisation at the top. So when you do see these initiatives put in the hands of ERGs or seen as grass level initiatives, hoping that that change will filter out, it doesn't work. When there are no metrics and no measurement, what gets measured gets done. Often we see a lot of programs and lots of efforts are launched, but there is no metrics to measure what success looks like. And time. We are living in turbulent, volatile times and people are time poor. And so it's really hard to understand what's being asked of me. What do you actually want me to do? Yes, I'm not going to block this initiative. Yes, I'll show up and I'll attend. But what more? And what can you expect when I've got so much on my plate already to contend with? So those are the three markers of when we see things that are not really producing those long-term progress. I think when you don't treat diversity, equity and inclusion as a business problem, you fail to enroll and engage the very people that have the power and the influence to move the needle on it. And I think that's often when you don't link it to your strategy, when there's no accountability for it, there's no way of measuring it, and there's a lack of understanding of the problem you're trying to actually solve for. It's easy to say, yes, we need to be more demographically diverse, but what does that actually mean? And how does that translate for your specific organization and context? What's actually needed? I'll share an example. When I was working with... Government, they actually looked at this and drilled down that they were having a bit of a groupthink issue at the senior level. And the problem was actually down to the fact that most people at that level had the same academic background. They came from a lot of social science and art subjects. And what they wanted was more STEM thinking in terms of their approach. So then that drilled down in right, we need to look at our talent pipelines and what are we doing to attract people that come from subjects that differ from the majority makeup. So it's not looking at, okay, we need to have more women because society says we need to have more representation of women in the organisation. What does that actually look like for your context? And measurement. I'm going to bring this up time and time again. Measurement. It's when you're not measuring it. To end on a bit more of a positive note coming to what actually works, it's shifting focus from diverse talent acquisition to really what are you doing to harness the diversity you already have in your organisation? Because it's easy to just go out to market and go, right, let's just hire a lot of women or let's hire a lot of ethnic minorities in and somehow that will check the box and solve the issue. No, I think you really need to look at, you have diversity within your organisations. What conversations are being had around, what are the barriers that might be inhibiting the pipelining of success all the way through to the top? I already mentioned not siloing this to HR. This is not a HR initiative. It's not HR's job to make the organisation more diverse and more inclusive. They are part of the solution, but they are not the solution itself. Being transparent around promotions, around pay processes and actually the rationale and the criteria that informs that because that can help to edge out biases that can take place where there are just informal discussions happening around that. Tackling microaggressions and instances of exclusion or discrimination in the moment. I'm going to give you one of our sort of patented models which is a really simple way and when we talk about these things I'm not talking about these broad stroke commitments and initiatives. These are about the micro practices you're engaging in day-to-day. These are things, this should just be how you work, how you lead. It's just good leadership. There's a correlation actually between the attributes of a high-performing team, an inclusive team, and a team that has a high level of trust. And there's a reason for that because it's about behaviours. Initiatives and efforts need to be focused on the leadership and the behaviours that we're engaging in, how we work, how we lead, and how we interact with one another. So one way that we share a model that we have is called ACM. So when you witness something that you think, well, OK, actually, that was a bit exclusionary in our team meeting, how do you address it in the moment? People make it into a bigger issue or that gets awkward or it's just simply ignored. And we say ACM it. And what that means is have a conversation, show up with curiosity, not judgment. This is not about shaming people or cancelling them. It's about going, I just want to make you aware that when you said that, you sort of actually co-opted the idea as your own and didn't allow so-and-so to really speak c course correct okay so maybe next time what we can do is as a team make sure that we call each other out if we see that happening and m which is the one most people tend to struggle with is move on just move on because in the world of DEI, you will make mistakes. I make mistakes, and I'm considered an expert in this field. I make mistakes all the time, but what I do is I use them as learning opportunities and the safety to make mistakes, because that's how I learn. That's how difference is evolving constantly. I'm never going to know everything, and I'm never going to necessarily know that maybe something I've said or done, with regardless of intention, may have caused upset or may have made someone feel like they couldn't speak up. So how do I make it safe as a leader for that person to come and speak to me and make me aware of that? So ACM, if nothing else from this session, take that away. And actually you can use it yourself if you feel like you've said something or done something and after the fact thought, oh actually that didn't quite sit right and I think I need to account for that. I made a joke and it didn't quite land and I may have been a bit offensive to somebody. So A becomes account and apologize. C becomes what you're going to do about it. And M, we move on and we do better. And that's all we can really do. And the final piece of what works is measure. Get specific about what you're measuring for anything that you do. How are you measuring it? And even if it is a behavior yourself that you're going to take back to your team, how are you collecting feedback to inform, actually, has this made a difference?
1: Has this made the culture in my team a bit more inclusive? Just picking up on a few things that you said, you mentioned business case earlier, you've mentioned measurement a few times, right? Just sticking on the theme of measure, we are frequently reminded, and there's various studies that would highlight that companies that prioritize diversity and inclusion they are more likely to outperform than competitors. And that's not just a vague correlation, right? A tangible business advantage, whether that be greater innovation or greater resilience in the face of change. And if that is true then what this is actually highlighting is that this isn't just about doing what's right, which is Mm -hmm. what you said earlier, but also about ultimately securing a sustainable future for your organisations. So just shedding some light on what is the opposite to what you've spoken about, the real cost Mm -hmm. to businesses of not getting it right and why companies can't simply afford to overlook or underinvest. Yeah. So I often sometimes get
0: asked, along with that question, like what's the future of DEI? The future's here the new talent coming through our doors is the most ethnically diverse group to enter the workforce we can't afford to ignore that the competition for talent is fierce and the new economic reality volatility turbulence and what do we need in order to thrive and stay ahead of competition is we need to be able to innovate we need to rely that people will bring their best selves and offer that discretionary effort to help us thrive and overcome any barriers to success that we might see and In order to do that, we can't afford to sideline diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially when we're in volatile and economically turbulent times, because often culture initiatives are sidelined, because it's like, well, we don't have time for that, we need to focus on the business. It is business critical. The role of DEI in business performance and its bearing on growth are too high to simply sideline the topic. So the costs are, if you don't make this a priority, you will see higher turnover. You will have greater competition for talent, and it won't come through your door you will see less growth less innovation you will have low levels of trust you will have poorer performance and you will have an unsafe work culture and all of those things are not conducive to thriving in times of crisis so there is countless research that supports this as well and says that in order to thrive in order to be profitable a recent mckenzie study show i said about the 25 percent margin actually if you have greater ethnic diversity in your executive leadership board your companies likely to experience up to 35% greater profitability, regardless of what the economic climate might be. And that correlates as well with gender diversity at that level. And I've read countless reports. I think there was a recent study by BCG, and you've got Deloitte, and you've got McKinsey studies about the status of women. And to be honest, it made for a depressing read. But the one thing I took away from it that actually gave me hope that there should be a great concern to companies is that the difference nowadays is people will leave toxic cultures they will vote with their feet. They won't just simply stay and stick it out. And if they're not in a position to simply leave, for whatever reason, they won't show up at work with their best ideas, their best innovations, their best self, their discretionary effort. They will simply just show up and quietly quit. So what was referred to as the great resignation during the pandemic is now being referred to, I didn't coin this phrase, as the great Breakup. And what's the trend we're seeing is that women will simply take their talent and their skills and go elsewhere. They will not stay. So if you don't make the change and the commitment to this work, it's going to happen to you. And what you will see is you will see talent and the diversity you're looking to harness simply leave. So those are the costs.
1: We really haven't scripted this one. I'm going to come back onto the Great Breakup because particularly with our Women in Securities Finance hat on, we certainly have some observations in that space. So I'll come on to it. But moving on then to ultimately the topic in my mind that underpins the essence of today's agenda, inequality. And that's not just about stats and figures, but it's about the profound impacts of inequality on individuals and society as a whole. So we can just try to unravel how it operates and the consequences it bears so your insights on essentially the mechanics of inequality how does it work and what keeps it in place despite concerted efforts to remove it
0: well before I start when I talk about diversity equity inclusion equality I just want to say what I mean by it just so that it sets the context of it so when we obviously talk about diversity I'm talking about representation of diverse perspectives in an organization when I'm talking about inclusion are we creating an enabling environment for those individuals to make a meaningful contribution when I'm talking about equity the norms the policies and processes that exist are they allowing for bias to privilege the few and then when I talk about equality I'm talking about your ability to show up as you are and be who you are and your difference is valued and you're able to contribute. So when we talk about how inequality shows up in the workplace, I think it's important to say that workplaces were never designed for difference. So success does discriminate, based on how closely you align to, essentially, the leadership ideal. And the leadership ideal is made up by the dominant group in your given organisation and the behaviours that they engage in. And so, essentially, the more ways that you differ from that prototype, which, I'm sorry to say, tends to be a heterosexual, cis, white, male, you are likely to encounter greater barriers to advancement and success. So, that's really how it can kind of play out. Now, in terms of what actually keeps it in place, denial. Now, when I talk about denial and some of the signs of denial is the holding on, whether consciously or unconsciously, to the illusion of a meritocracy, that somehow everybody is enjoying the same lived experience of the workplace and are accessing the same opportunities as everyone else, so everyone has a very similar path to the top as each other and therefore you don't need to account for those differences. <coughs> I think a lack of awareness of the barriers that people might be experiencing So I wonder how many of you maybe have had a conversation, regardless of your own demographic background, your identity, with someone that doesn't look like you or somebody that doesn't share your background, about maybe some of the barriers they may have encountered, whether it's accessing or entering the workforce, whether it's as they progress through the organisation, whether it's networking opportunities, whether it's access to information or privileged opportunities. Really, how aware are you of the different lived experiences within your team, within your wider organisation? I think it's when you begin to intrinsically justify that things are the way they are because they are. And we've done everything we possibly can to help minority groups be successful. Or they already have every advantage. There's this mentorship scheme, there's this... But all of those initiatives tend to focus on fix the individual and somehow that will enable their success. And then finally, where you do have... Say somebody from an underrepresented group represented at the leadership level, that being held up as the norm, like, oh, look, they made it. So you all can too. And rather than actually viewing it as the exception versus the norm. So those are some of the things that I think actually inadvertently, and I'm not saying this is done with any intention, but that's the reality of what tends to keep inequality and the status quo
1: in play. So look, gender diversity and representation, that's something that I feel very passionate about and it's integral to the mission of Women in Securities Finance. So just for a moment, Mm -hmm. narrowing our focus to gender diversity, it is a fact that women often encounter obstacles that can hinder their progress and impact their career trajectories. And sometimes these obstacles are glaring, sometimes they're more subtle. But they have far-reaching consequences right so I know we're going to talk solutions in a bit but just again based on your research what are some of the most common obstacles that women could encounter in the workplace and again some of the outcomes that could arise from these barriers so for those of you that may have been able to pick up a book by my business
0: partner Michelle she's done 20 years of research to actually narrow this down to 17 barriers for women and six for men so she does talk about barriers that men encounter as well but I'm just going to highlight three. Some of these you're already probably aware of, but I will just touch on how it plays out in the workplace. So one of them is the performance tax. So this is the assumption that women enter the workforce with this perceived deficit and the assumption that men are more competent. And how this can play out is that actually it's the ability to make mistakes. So men are granted more grace when it comes to taking on a new challenge, taking risks, moving roles, accepting a high profile opportunity. Um, If they fail or if they make a mistake, it's attributed to learning. However, when a woman does the same and maybe experiences some mistakes or there's some setbacks, it just reinforces the assumption that she's less competent. So that's one way that that can play out. So that can really inhibit the ability and access to opportunities and the ability to advance in an organization when you're facing that increased pressure to almost outperform the expectations of your male counterparts. The next one would be the confidence and competence, sort of catch-22. We know that confidence is often attributed and associated with perceived competence. And how that plays out for women, though, is that the characteristics that are associated with being confident are often less likeable. So you tread this very fine line between likability and perceived competence. And actually both are equally important when it comes to being identified or being sponsored for opportunities. And so that can be a real challenge to navigate as a woman in the workforce. And the final one I want to highlight is actually when you have managed to get to the top, enter senior leadership in the executive board level, you move from tokenism to what we call trophyism, where you are essentially, research shows that when an organisation appoints one woman, they're less likely to appoint more. 'Cause actually it's seen as a bit of a checkbox of like, look, we're diverse. We've got a woman on the board. We must be doing really well in this. But also what the expectation then falls to that woman to somehow be representative of all the other women, and this is true of most diverse demographic markers in the organisation and somehow responsible for the advancement of all other women in the organisation as well. And this, again, research backs this up with women in senior leadership positions tend to be two times more likely to take on the responsibilities for DEI efforts and DEI initiatives. But this work is rarely recognised or and actually can be seen as like fluffy side work that you're doing that doesn't actually contribute to business continuity and success. So therefore, it's seen as a distraction as opposed to something that you're recognised as doing on top of your day-to-day responsibilities. And of course, this can lead to greater burnout We're seeing that with the burnout crisis of women leaving because the increased pressure of performance tax then on top of that when you are successful you're then expected to take on all these additional
1: side initiatives to support that so those are just three i'd highlight there are more just to balance that out before we move on to the final section is while addressing the unique challenges that women face is undeniably important inclusion is after all an all-encompassing principle that extends to everyone and it's not just about gender it there's race background identity so Very briefly, your perspectives on why it's important to go further than just a focus on women, right, Mm -hmm. in this space.
0: This is something I commonly hear, especially from clients, where it's like, right, we're focusing on women now. So that's our, but the issue with that, and it sort of doesn't account for intersectionality. Like you rarely encounter one aspect of somebody's identity. I'm not just a woman. I'm not just an Indian. I'm not just a mother. I'm all of those things. And that shapes my lived experience and the barriers I may therefore encounter when I enter the workforce. And I think I'll take, for example, a very common example of, the gender pay gap and actually according to the economic policy institute the fastest growing gender pay gap is actually between white women and women of color it's not between women and men so when you take a narrow view of just looking at one demographic identifying marker you limit the scope and the perspective of how you're going to approach identifying potential solutions. So it's really broadening that lens to account for different experiences so that you don't inadvertently further inequity by going, I'm just gonna focus on this and assume that, say for example, a white woman's experience is the only experience being had by all women in the organization. (coughs) And therefore you design programs or initiatives or whatever it is you might be doing in the space to account for that. So it's really important to broaden that lens And one way to do that is to authentically build connection and actually engage and enroll the very group that you're seeking to support in telling you what does the day-to-day lived experience look like and what is it that I tend to experience. One piece of research showed that black women have, I think, 50% less exposure to senior leadership than white men. And I think it was not much difference between white women and black women as well. So it's really looking at like, what are the issues that are impacting the particular group you're seeking to represent, and then use that to evidence what you then decide to do to move forward. Don't just make assumptions about one group and club them together in one.
1: So intersectionality is something actually that I feel quite passionate about with many other things and I heard once a line that I thought was really effective is that what you want to do is avoid creating minorities within a minority group mm-hmm. right and I think it is important therefore to factor in but look ultimately action is where the true impact lies mm-hmm. so just going to pivot towards the practical aspect of our discussion and see if you can flag high level at this stage solutions to some of the challenges that we've unpacked today. What does a truly effective solution look like and where should a company's journey
0: begin? So there are five factors. I'm going to just refer so I don't miss anything out. I think the first thing, and I've sort of touched on it in my other answers, is understand the problem you're trying to solve or that is specific to your team or your organisation. And this has to be driven by data first. You need to look at what is informing that. So if you are seeking to represent more women at a particular level or address the broken run, which we've talked about in the past, what are those women telling you about the challenges and barriers they're encountering? And how can you dismantle that? What policies, processes, practices are in place to remove those barriers and enable their success? I think defining what success looks like, so defining what by when, so really actually committing to specific quantifiable goals, not just, yeah, we hope that in some point in the near future we'll have more women. You know, I think you really need to hold yourself or the team to account to what that actually looks like for your organisation. I think accountability needs to sit with leadership and Before you do that, I think you need to ensure that they feel equipped to be accountable. You can't just simply assign something and go, right, good luck with that. I think that's where maybe HR can work hand in hand and look at how can we support your inclusion capabilities so that you can become a more inclusive leader. What does that look like? I think these solutions for context, and alongside that, communicate what you're doing. You would be so surprised. A lot of noise happens in the vacuum and the absence of information. We've worked with clients where they're actually, one organisation in their culture survey, had all of this evidence in the comments that people had left that there was this perceived gender pay gap. Significant, there were a lot. And they had actually done an audit And I think it was 0.1%. It was quite staggering. But they hadn't communicated it to the wider organisation, that there in fact wasn't a gender pay gap. And if there was, they had reconciled it. And by not doing that, people had this perception. There was all this noise and swell around the ERGs where they categorically believed there was a massive gender pay gap. So communicate what you're doing. Communicate the good stuff that is going on because people often aren't aware that there is work being done and there is priority being given to certain initiatives to move the needle on this. And measure impact, please. Please. Measure impact and do that consistently so that you can iterate and improve. It's not a static process of what could be working better, what isn't working, how do we pivot, how do we change that. It should be a living
1: process. So those are the five factors. So... Look, you mentioned the great breakup earlier, and Mm -hmm. I said we were going to get to it. We, from a WISA perspective, regularly get feedback at this juncture around women in their mid-career who are facing the challenge of being able to integrate work and home responsibilities without citing any reports and studies that the data signals a a similar trend with a drop-off at Mm mid-career. It's a complex challenge, but I do think that we need to confront it. So any insights or learnings from firms that you've worked with on how they've successfully incorporated changes into their working practices so they can be more effectively supporting working parents and other caregivers mm-hmm. or caregiving responsibilities yeah. and this is
0: always a really interesting it can sometimes be a contentious question because I know particularly in this industry there are definitely different work setups and different prioritization given to in-work working versus flexibility hybrid and all of this so people can get very attached to their desired outcome so I want to say I'm always led by research and what research is telling us I'm not here to judge which one is better or thing and I think you need to account for any given work set up on how does it impede or enable inclusion in that environment and um, first and foremost we need to own the culture we need to recognize our role in creating it and so we need to really take action in order to shift that and to create more inclusive environments now It is true that research does show that flexibility, particularly for women and for people with caring responsibilities, is important. It's an important factor to enable their entry into the workforce, but also their ability to advance within an organisation. And essentially, I just want to share a small anecdote. We had a client meeting with a UK-based client, and it was set for, I think it was 8am in the morning, which wasn't unusual. So we were like, yep, it's a client meeting, right, we're going to do this. We attended, the client was quite flustered. They were trying to manage the school run and be present in the meeting and they were struggling to do so. We then had a subsequent meeting. It got cancelled because of the time and their plans had fallen through us to cover that drop-off. And then when it got rescheduled for the second time it was then booked in for the same time and Michelle and I we sort of said why is it being scheduled for 8am because clearly not only is it impacting our ability to have to make all these contingencies to enable to participate in this meeting we're in the same time zone and the individual is also struggling so we actually pushed back and we said hey is there a reason why this is being scheduled for 8am on a school day and is there any way that we can move the meeting to after nine and they were like yeah sure actually we can and In the meeting, they said, oh, we're really glad that you raised that. But we never thought to question it because we just always did it that way. So the point I'm trying to make there is what gets accepted just gets normalized. And sometimes we just don't question some of the practices that we might be engaging in our team cultures to think, actually, is it inadvertently excluding a group of individuals or creating a barrier for participation as a result? So get to know your team. These don't have to be big bold stroke initiatives these can be simple practices that in your team understand who makes up your team okay what are some of their barriers to full participation and access so how can you account for that obviously there are exceptions to that but how flexible policies existed well before the pandemic hit the point is there's often a stigma associated with you know how can people really take up those opportunities their safety to really ask and enact them because often they're like we've got flexible we must be inclusive and flexible and it's not the case I think you really need to unpack the problem because I think Sometimes an assumption is made when people are asking for flexibility because they've got caring responsibilities. It's like, oh, great, they want to work from home five days a week, and it's rarely the case. It's actually maybe they're looking for small norms to be reset within the team that will enable them to fully participate and, as a result, be more productive
1: for the organization. So I prefer dynamic way. working as a reference point rather mm-hmm. than flexible working, but anyway, that's conversation for another day. So actionable insights what are the things that you want to leave the audience with yeah that we can incorporate that could actually make a difference so we always like to talk about micro practices
0: lead to macro changes so these can be just everyday things that you look to do when you leave here today whether it's today later today or tomorrow and we have a very clear theory of change and we touch on that kind of moving from disrupting denial becoming aware Understanding how these barriers might be showing up for people and then taking action to dismantle, support, sponsor and enable difference to be valued. So one way to do that is to just simply take a moment to reflect on is there in some way that you might be perpetuating certain stereotypes or biases, how are you maybe a part of what's going on in the lived experience of people that may not look like you or share your background. And then I think it's about identifying what's your personal case for change, because at the end of the day, if you don't know why you care to commit to making your team more diverse, to being more inclusive, building greater trust, you're not going to commit to taking any action. So you really need to make that case. And actually, I encourage you to share it because it makes it credible. Often there's a lack of trust in when people start talking about DEI and they come from an event like this and they're like, oh, I feel really, you know, charged up and inspired. And your team's like, oh, gosh, okay, this is going to last a week and then we'll move on to the next trend. So when we talk about trust, it's really three components. It's transparency, it's clarity, and it's consistency. Being clear on why you care to make a change, to be more inclusive in the way that you might be participating or leading a team. I think being transparent about how you're going to try and do that How can your team hold you to account? Encourage feedback. And I think being consistent, don't give up at the first try if people are a bit questioning, suspicious of your now commitment to this agenda, but actually consistently keep doing it, keep bringing it up, keep trying to make it a living conversation in your teams, whether it's two minute check-in to build meaningful connections, whether it's one-to-one with people that don't look like you or share your background and saying, look, I just want to understand a bit more about your experience. What could I be doing more of? What could I be doing less of that might be impeding or enabling inclusion? And then I think it's about paying attention to moments where those microaggression moments, where somebody is being talked over, somebody might not be participating as much that you notice. How can you use that model of ACM to start those conversations in the moment? And then finally, spending your privilege through visibly and vocally sponsoring people that differ from you. And you don't have to be in a management position to do this. You can do this with a peer, a colleague. How can you celebrate their work in certain contexts? How can you exactly sponsor people? How can you celebrate acts of inclusion that may not have a tangible output? So you start to make it a living practice. So those are the three.
1: Which nicely actually, we'll take one of those two It segues into the importance of allyship, right, and male engagement on this journey. So any insights on how can men be effective allies and advocates for gender equality? I think it's
0: essentially, why are you becoming an ally? Like, what is your personal why for DEI, we like to say? And then I think it's engaging with the group that you're seeking to be an ally of. Like, don't make assumptions. Like, I think there's a great quote I read recently. Don't do the work... For people, do it with people. And the reason that came to mind was because we went to a lot of IWD events, actually, in March. And I was kind of astounded by the number of women that were at these events and the lack of men. And at the end of the day, I think male enrollment and male engagement, it's so important to have conversations, open and frank conversations about what that looks like. What does somebody actually need from you? How can you enable that in a realistic way that doesn't make you feel like, oh my gosh, I've set this unrealistic goal for myself and I'm not going to be able to follow through on that commitment? Like Following through on what you say you will do to support and enable and sponsor difference, whichever group that might be that you choose to align yourself with. And I think seek to amplify and visibly endorse as well when it comes to, in this case, it's gender equality. So make small quantifiable goals of actions that you're going to take and check back in and go, how am I doing? Have I actually, do you feel like I followed through on these goals? Do you think I could do more of this I think it's really important to make these things small because that's what causes a lot of stress and anxiety. You make these big commitments and then you don't really have time to do it. I think it's being really realistic about what it is that it's allyship is an action. It's not just I'm an ally and therefore that's it. I'm an ally because I feel like I'm a feminist and I support this and I speak up and attend events. No, it has to be actual practices. What are you doing to be an ally?
1: And with that, we've actually reached our closing. I feel like we could have done easily with another 10, 15 minutes. So a heartfelt thank you for joining us today. With that, we will close. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Perspectives by Women in Securities Finance. And a big thank you to our featured speakers from this episode. And of course, all the active Women in Securities Finance members that are driving real change in our marketplace today. If you have ideas for future episodes or would like to get involved,
0: please visit our website or you can contact Women in Securities Finance via LinkedIn. And to make sure you don't miss an episode, you can subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer.
1: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenters and do not reflect the views or opinions of their respective employer organizations.
0: This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal, tax, or investment advice.
1: There is no representation
0: or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.